Well, I was uh, uh, many years ago, about 21 years ago, I was on an overseas uh, missions trip to China. And as we were going through that uh, training, we were going through the different scenarios, including what if you actually get lost? Um, and sure enough, um, one of those, those times, me and my teammate actually got lost. And uh, we were in a taxi, and we told the, the brother, hey, can you take us back to the Honglo, which... Paul would know, unless I totally butcher that in Chinese, uh, that it's the big red building. And they would know that that's the big red building that all the, the foreigners who taught at the university uh, would stay. And, um, and so we told him, hey, well, this is where we're going. And, uh, but he kind of looked at us blankly, and we, uh, we uh, tried to say it and tried to say it again, and then it just registered. And so we were like, okay, we sat back, we thought it was good. And so we kept on just kind of going on for the ride, and then before you knew it, we were on the outskirts of the city. I mean, and the, t- the ticker was going past like 30 yuan, and we're like, oh, that's not good. So in vain, in, in my broken Chinese and in my really bad English, I just uh, tried to kept on telling him, hey, we're trying to go back to the honglo, to the honglo. And, and it was just like deer in the headlights, right? Nothing was going. And, um, but thankfully, we showed him this paper um, that actually had the Chinese written out for us by the leader um, of our team. And that's when he said, oh, okay. And then he turns around. And then, you know, we got back after midnight, about 80 yon poor, and vowing to never get lost again. <laughs> have you ever been in that spot where you have just, whatever you tried to say, whatever you tried to do, nothing was hitting Like, you would just continue to just keep on going and going, but nothing would just, would register. Well, this is kind of what it looked like in the text that we're going to see today. And in fact, they were not just only lost, they were just completely confused and befuddled and completely out of it. And so this is where Jesus continues to to share about his purpose of the parables. And this is where, as Jesus is sharing you know, most of the time we see different uh, reactions, one of strong emotions, one of negative emotions, one of positive emotions. Um, but here we saw just a sense of just bewilderment. And so when you look, take a look at back at the text, um, Jesus is, is sharing um, these stories, this story, to the crowds. And the disciples in verse 10 in chapter 13, it says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? It was obvious even to the disciples that Jesus was not even coming through. And so, and probably it was because that Jesus gave a parable, which we know is a story taken from like ordinary life or from a natural uh, life that conveys some kind of spiritual meaning. But it just seemed like it was just hitting on deaf ears. And so, they were trying to say, like, Jesus, why are, you, why are you talking in parables? And why are you not even explaining the parable? Because at this point, he hadn't given his explanation yet. Why bother even saying it when they're not even connecting with you, and they've already rejected you anyway? We saw that in our Matthew series, in Matthew chapter 11 and 12, we see that they upped the ante in terms of opposition. And they've already rejected Jesus. And so the disciples are asking and saying to, the, to Jesus, you're wasting your breath. But the point was actually exactly that. Jesus was saying to them, in order to understand the parables, you need to have more than just natural insight. 
You need to know more than speak the language. In order to understand these stories, spiritual sight and spiritual understanding of the mysteries of God need to be revealed to you. And so this was a spiritual gauge in relation to Jesus to bring them to a point of who they were and where they stood with Jesus and whether they were going to be to the point of hardening or to a point of softening in their hearts. This is behind Jesus' response to the question in verses 11 and 12. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more will be given, and he will have it in abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus was saying that this understanding is not just a given, it's a gift. The gifts of the the kingdom of heaven are not naturally discerned, but they are spiritually discerned. The disciples were given more than just glasses or hearing aids, right? Because we know that glasses, they just merely prescribe to correct bad vision and try to correct it, sharpen it, but it does not cure it. You got to get eye surgery, right? You have to get LASIK. And so the disciples were given new eyes to see the mystery of heaven that others could not see. They were given a spiritual LASIK uh, to their spiritual eyesight. And Jesus is saying that the people under the Old Covenant, in other words, the people that came before Jesus and that were under the law could never understand what the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven was. They had blurred vision. It was like me because I am badly, badly nearsighted. The only one that I know that's worse is my wife. (laughs) And um, she is more nearsighted than I am. But it led to me one day, waking up one day without my glasses on, and I, I stumbled to the kitchen to pour my cereal as I usually did, and I accidentally poured orange juice in my Cheerios. Um, now, if you've ever tasted that, I don't recommend it. Don't go try it tonight. <laughs> uh, don't try this concoction. It is absolutely horrific. But that's where they were going. They were like having orange juice in their Cheerios every day. Even if they had the lens of the prophets, the patriarchs, the judges, they had the law themselves. They had people like Moses and they had people like Abraham, yet they were unable to discern because they had blurry, nearsighted eyesight. God had not revealed to them the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And so while the forefathers, they were badly blinded that Jesus was the Messiah, the disciples' eyes were open to see the long-awaited kingdom of God, which the prophets and the patriarchs had predicted would come. However, the crowds just did not have their eyes opened to Jesus' authority. They were willing to hear Jesus, kind of like the taxi driver. They're not willing to be committed to Jesus and his cause because the spiritual eyesight had not been given. And they're still feeling their way around uh, the, 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 the supermarket. And they, they were still feeling their way around the refrigerator and still serving themselves orange juice uh, with Cheerios. And this is why Jesus says, look at with me back into the text In verses 12, for to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
And so those who believed in Jesus, who were passionately committed to him and his cause, they were the ones that had been given that spiritual eyesight. They were the ones who would mature, and God would grow them more and more in spiritual understanding. But here, it doesn't under, we don't understand exactly what is to be given, but it's not material wealth, but it's probably spiritual wealth, more spiritual understanding and more spiritual wisdom, as Paul had prayed for the Philippians, that your love may abound with all discernment, and the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, right, to know the love and the height and the breadth and the width and the depths of the love of God. And so this is an encouragement to those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. This is Peter spoke of last week, especially with those two women that, uh, that gave themselves to the missionary cause into the most dangerous of places in South Sudan and just giving themselves in total surrender, even willing to take a child, their child with them into this mission field. To them, more understanding and wisdom will be given. And their process of maturity will flourish because they have believed in God's powerful word. But those who are not believing, the opposite will occur. Whatever little they have will be taken away. Now, some people see a contradiction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They say, if God has sovereignly chosen us, then why would God hold us humanly responsible for actions we don't produce That is certainly not fair. How can God hold us morally responsible when we were chosen by his sovereign will? Well, I'm not going to solve that debate in the next five minutes as much as I would like to. I just want to say that in the scriptures, as we are tied to what the scriptures say, and here at Hope, we we don't just bounce away from hard text. We want to walk through expositionally. Um, We believe that our primary diet is expository teaching, um, and we want to go verse by verse. But I think what we see here in the scriptures is that there is a divine and healthy tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we got to hold these truths in tension. That A, God is completely sovereign, and he chooses whomever and however he wills, yet B, we are fully and morally culpable for our actions. Psalm 115.3 says that God is in heaven. Whatever he pleases, he does. Yet if we were not responsible for our actions, why would Jesus keep telling us that if you want to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me? Why would he respond after these parables of the kingdom? We see seven here in Matthew chapter 13 alone. Why does he repeat it after with, this, with this refrain, let he who has ears, let him hear? The point is that God is totally sovereign, but we are morally responsible for our actions. <laughs> um, just a very... Um, today, uh, this past week, as you know, we had a pretty bad uh, uh, storm uh, a few days ago, and it was uh, Saturday. It's always weeding day, and um, my my kids sound like the Israelites that were wandering in the wilderness. They're always saying, "Oh, Dad, do we have to do weeding again?" And there's one that especially gets under my skin, and so I'm totally sovereign over my yard. Okay, <laughs> you are. I'm, I'm in a sense sovereign over the kids. Doesn't mean I am like cruel to them, but I'm sovereign of my yard and what I look like. And I could do whatever I wanted to do, including cleaning it all up myself. But then I'm sovereignly appointed to be their father, and I have human agents 
five of them now, <laughs> namely uh, my kids, and um, they are all under my charge. And while I am praying desperately that God would open their eyes to the glories of the gospel and to the scriptures, I at the same time have to realize as a parent that they are responsible for their actions. And I can't just give in and just say, oh yeah, just do whatever you want. Yeah, let the, let the branches and the weeds and the grass grow out. No, I'm going to give them brooms and rakes, right? And tell them how to do it. But that doesn't mean they will actually do what I asked them to do. And they are, it doesn't mean that they'll actually do it with actually a happy heart. But they're responsible for doing and picking up their rakes, doing their parts, sweeping it up, cleaning it up. And if they disobey, then that is on them. And if they do obey, then that is, that is great. But it, in the same way, that love has to be there. I'm not just a sovereign agent, but I am a loving father. And my heart for them is that they would grow as godly men and women. That's one of the reasons why I do that. And if they obey, they disobey, this is something that, that we need to be able to teach our kids and model to them. Well, if that's authority structure within our family structure, then how is it more, even more infinitely true of God and his created beings? As the Apostle Paul defends God's sovereign choice in Romans 9, 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We have to know that, if, that, that even if God never chose anyone, we cannot accuse him of any injustice. So the question is not why doesn't God save everyone because of his holiness and his power and his greatness and his utter hatred against sin and considering that all of us are sinners to the core, the question becomes why does God save anyone at all. We were all sinners and deserving an ultimate judgment through his just wrath and his justice. We deserve to die because of the fall. Our first human representatives, Adam and Eve, fell to the lies of Satan and willingly chose to rebel against God's sovereign will and introduce another contrary will, that of their own. And we have inherited that sin and all human beings down the entire human race. We deserve spiritual hell and separation from a holy and a just God because we have, in a sense, defamed God. We have degotted a holy and just God. That's the effect of our sin. But that's where God showed us the measures of his love in which he sovereignly sent his son to live a righteous life, a life that we could never, ever live in full obedience to the Father. And then he died and was crucified on the cross, which was the greatest injustice the world had ever seen. That the sinless son of God, the one who is morally perfect, the one who is God's own and treasure, was sentenced to death. And it was through this unjust act that he was given the death of criminals. And yet it was through the crucifixion in our place that justice and mercy met and justice was fulfilled, mercy was given to sinners when he bore the punishment of sin. And then after three days, the Father's wrath was satisfied. God raised Jesus from the grave three days later so that anyone who would put their faith in Jesus in full surrender to him would have life and forgiveness and mercy. That is a part of the God, that is the gospel. And we can't believe in the good news without believing in the bad news that we 
We're sinners deserving of God's just wrath and judgment. We were sinners far, far away from the living God. I was a a hardened criminal, a hardened rebel, bending to my own will. And if we don't believe in that hard truth, then we're not believing the gospel. Amen? We're not believing the sinfulness of sin. Your response to this parable will show you where you stand. And honestly, I've struggled through that of how does God also harden um, hearts, right? So many people recoil from God's righteous wrath. But in the message of the gospel we see from this text, it serves to harden the hearts of those who hear it. But this is exactly why Jesus spoke in parables. Precisely so he can expose who are his. But those who hear the parables, they may see, but do not really see. They may hear with their ears and not really hear, and they will not understand at all. In fact, the Bible is so true that even in Isaiah's time, 700 years before that, he had predicted this, 700 years before, that their minds and hearts were dead set against the word of God. We see Isaiah 6 was spoken as a, this is coming from Isaiah 6, Um, as a prophetic word of of warning and judgment to the people who committed widespread idolatry, extortion, bribery, injustice, robbing the orphan and the widow, and meaningless worship. And in the same way, Jesus said, what we see today, what what he saw in his day by their hardening was a fulfillment of that. Those in Isaiah's day also mirrored that of Jesus' day. They will hear the word of God, but they will not receive it or take it. Their eyes were shut, their eyes were closed, and their hearts grew dull. Jesus purposely spoke the parables to expose the hearts of those who were hardened against him and had already rejected him to show who he is. And again, with my heart and soul, I want to naturally believe that God doesn't harden people. And if I don't believe that, then how do I explain away Isaiah's prophecy? How do I explain away the rest of Revelation? If our hearts are softened, though, as we approach this with fear and trembling, trying to understand a divine mystery, I think as you continue to meditate on this, that you begin to meditate it and come to the point of like, man, I was a sinner I was as wretched and blind and as poor as those in Isaiah's day and also in Jesus' day, and this was my destiny. This could have been my judgment, but oh, what a great Savior that God is and that he saved me. I mean, it just should blow our mind. In the same way, what is our response to Jesus' word? And it will provide a clue of whether you're spiritually hardened or spiritually tender. Look at verse 16. Jesus goes on and after quoting Isaiah's prophecy and he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and do not see it and to hear what you hear and do not hear it. Now Jesus turns back to his disciples and says, blessed are you because you hear. Blessed are you, your eyes, because you see. And at this point, Jesus is not speaking to the crowds anymore, but his disciples. 
He's talking about the spiritual perception that God has given them. In the same way, this blessing is only for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have committed their whole lives and surrendered his life to, to their lives to his cause. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, pointing to the fact that this is a divine word. What he says is that many in redemption history have longed and wished to know and see what the disciples have received. And keep in mind, these are the prophets. These are the likes of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Daniel and Zechariah and Habakkuk. And so many of them have longed to hear and understand, to get spiritual insight and understanding. But they've only been given glasses, really bulky glasses and really impractical hearing aids, which can aid but not cure blurred vision and can also help that hearing but not solve it. But Jesus has blessed the disciples far beyond all the great prophets of the faith. He has given them the spiritual sight and insight that outweighs even prophets like Isaiah. Even people who have seen the very visions of the glory of God, of God sitting at his temple and the the glory of God just filling the temple. Can you believe that? That the scriptures and your understanding as a new covenant, New Testament believer shows that you are more blessed than those of the old covenant that it's a miracle, a sheer miracle, that you are seeing what you are seeing in Scripture today. Every time you're singing a song with Eddie or Monica and the team, and you're singing the Word of God, you're showing to the authorities of the spiritual authorities of this world that God's Word is true. Every time you are receiving God's word being preached or taught, you are saying God's word is true and treasured. Every single time you sing and modeling the word of God, you are also saying God's word is true. And that is a miracle. That's why every time I approach the scriptures, I always need to first acknowledge that, Lord, I cannot do anything apart from my flesh. I need God to speak to me supernaturally. Holy Spirit, remove the blinders from my eyes. Remove the callousness from my heart. Remove the, uh, the, the sleep deprivation of my spiritual soul. Wake me out of sleep, God. I need your Holy Spirit. Just like the parable of the soil, I need the word of God to fall on that good soil to produce 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. But God... I can't get it myself. And that's the mystery. God is saying to us, prophets, holy men and women of old have longed to hear and taste what you are tasting. Do you really see that you're blessed? Do you really see that blessed are the ears, your eyes that see and the ears that hear? Do you really believe that your ability to even hear and just to understand and comprehend spiritual truth tonight is a miraculous work 